I guess really quickly on a note about translating to English, because I know um, many people might say like English is sort of like the language of freedom, you know, because、mm-hmm. all the freedom-oriented、yes. books are written in English. How it, is it really that important, right? That certain languages really kind of silo ideas, and really translating is that important? I think it's very important、uh, mm. because only English-speaking Latin Americans are familiar with public choice,、mm. uh, or, 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 or you have a very incomplete picture, you、mm. know,、um, because the, the the books that have been translated are sort of not, you know, you don't have a whole, whole picture of, of of the of the school of,、mm. the, of the research project.、Uh, so. Dr. Buchanan stumbled on Luxo because he had to take、uh, German、mm. <laughs> in college and, and,、uh, for his PhD, and, and then he could read German and he found a very wealthy、uh, text, you know, wealthy in ideas, and, 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 and it clicked with him. And, and that coupled with what he found out about Italy and、mm-hmm. Italian public、uh, finance、mm-hmm. when he was there for his Fulbright. Those that, as you said, you know that, that literature, that viewpoint that the Italian economists had, he was able to bring it into the into the English language、mm. sphere. So, I think I think it's important to translate、mm. the work in Spanish、mm. and to and to produce <coughs> our own our own work. Latin America is typically not a place that comes to mind when you mention public choice theory. Or any ideas associated with the classical liberal tradition, many often point out that the cultural and linguistic barriers make diffusion of liberty-oriented ideas a difficult task. One bright spot in what could be described as a continent full of socialist and mercantilist ideas is the university in Guatemala, known as the Universidad Francisco Marroquin. Today, I managed to sit down with Carol Rios, a professor at UFM and the founder of their Public Choice Center. Our conversation covers her intellectual journey, UFM's work in spreading the ideas of public choice and free markets in Latin America, and their observations about Latin American politics. Finally, we discuss the important question of making the ideas of liberty popular in societies that seem to be captivated with Marxist ideologies. Welcome to the AIER Standard. I'm Ethan Yang. Today, I have the great pleasure of catching up with. Carol Rios, who's a professor and trustee at Universidad Francisco Marroquin, did I say that correctly? Yes, you did.、Thank、Wonderful. <laughs> and we are recording on the road at the Public Choice Society here in Seattle.、Uh, we're not in our comfortable headquarters up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. So、uh, please excuse the、uh, makeshift room setup, but we're so happy to be here. And、uh, today's conversation、um, is a little bit more freewheeling and something that I'm actually diving into, not knowing much about, which is. Uh, typically, not what I try to do, but we'll be, we'll be doing it right now. But the topic is quite interesting.、Uh, we'll, today, we'll be talking about、uh, sort of your work and really spreading public choice in Guatemala and Latin America, and certainly a very interesting topic to get into. But first,、um, what is Universi- Universidad Francisco Marroquin? Okay,、uh, Universidad Francisco Marroquin. Was established in 1971、mm-hmm. by Dr. Manuel Ayau and nine other co-founders, and they were trying to promote the ideas of freedom.、Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, all of our students, regardless of what major they study, have to take four core economics courses,、mm-hmm. and they have to understand the philosophy of Hayek and Mises、mm-hmm. before they graduate. And、uh, it, they saw this as an antidote to、um, 
the communist uh, mm. uh, threat that mm. was posed by Marxist Leninist guerrilla movement mm. in the in the they from the 1960s to 1996. Mm. And so I guess so right away it's a school with a mission to really explore the ideas yes. of freedom and then protect them and bolster them with academic rigor. We are um, as a trustee. I'm 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 charged with ensuring that we maintain this mission, hmm. that we we keep up this work on behalf of freedom, and and that we are financially solvent. So it's it's a university that has a very clear mission. Yes. Hmm. So I'm hearing you're telling me you're a professor in a Guatemalan university, but your the ideas that you're teaching are you know I think I would say they originated in America. So I was wondering. Yes how you came across Public Choice. I stumbled on Public Choice by chance, really. Mm -hmm. I, I was um, reading, um, I, I find it kind of interesting because Dr. Buchanan once wrote that he stumbled on Wixel mm -hmm. um, by serendipity. And that's mm -hmm. sort of the way I stumbled onto his work. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I took the book to the dean and I said, we should be teaching this. This makes perfect sense given mm -hmm. the mission of this university. Mm -hmm. And since we're teaching political science and international relations students, they would really find this approach valuable. And he said, you start next semester. <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. mm. And so were you educated in Guatemala? Did you go abroad to get your education? I studied in the United States. I, I went to Dartmouth, mm -hmm. and then I went to Georgetown for a master's in Latin American studies. And throughout my, my studies in, in the United States, I was never exposed to public choice theory. Mm. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting how you said you were really, you didn't really study public choice from an uh, official academic world. It's more like a, you were just reading things and you came across it. Um, and it's very similar to the way I stumbled across public choice. I'm not an economist. I'm a majored in political science, getting my law degree right now. And I guess it's kind of funny. The way I stumbled across public choice was at a... Um, like a like a keynote speech at my uh, organized by the political science department at my college, but it wasn't about public choice. It was about why public choice is you know a right wing conspiracy, <laughs> and it's a bad thing. It was I, I believe the guest speaker was Nancy McLean, so I'm assuming oh. all oh. yeah <laughs> yeah. But I yes, ironically though that you know she explained what it was obviously in her terms, and I'm sitting there in the audience like that sounds pretty good. <laughs> like, yes, I have not been. As angry with the book as I <laughs> mm -hmm. was with democracy and change. Mm, yeah. it's, it's a very bad. It's bad from a historical perspective, mm -hmm. and it's also very bad from an economic mm. perspective. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting story. Yes, I just like you. I was introduced to it sort of through unofficial academic routes, mm -hmm. but for me, pers ironically, it was through sort of like a session about why you shouldn't like it, and I just ended up liking it. So. I, I really liked it. It made a lot of sense, and it made a lot of sense in terms of explaining some of the the, the things that go on in politics and, mm -hmm. and that are so frustrating that you don't really understand why we keep electing mm -hmm. uh, bad politicians or why we keep um, having these poor results. And I think public choice is a really good tool to explain some of these um, these, these phenomena. Mm. And yes, yeah, so I think it's important that we <clears throat> do like a basic intro to what it is, especially after that weird preface I just gave. Um, I guess in Northeast private schools, it is maybe forbidden knowledge, but obviously to us, this is very mainstream, normal things. Um, so from a basic perspective, what is public choice? Public choice is a 
other choice is uh, <coughs> applying sort of the economic toolkit to the political arena. So what public choice scholars do is they, they look at politics and they say, okay, uh, it's populated by people who also react to incentives, who have uh, specific interests, and um, they exchange in this political market. Um, there are uh, people who are demanding services, mm -hmm. and that, that would be us, you know, as uh, voters and consumers, and then there's people on the other side who are providing these services of politicians and the bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. And so um, through the, this lens, they are able to, to analyze what individuals in the political market are doing and mm -hmm. how they're making decisions. Mm. So it's sort of just unromanticizing politics. Yes. Saying it's not about, you know, like these people are for freedom and these people are for equality and like all that stuff. It's they're there to benefit themselves and the institutions and the structures create incentives to do one thing or another thing. That's right. And and it's not that the politicians or the voters are bad or or have um uh, I don't know, egotistical or have, have uh, poor values. It's that the structures they're in and mm -hmm. the rule set that they have to work with provokes some of these poor results. Mm. And so, how would that compare to? Because I don't know, I forgot what exactly the other school of thought is, but essentially, like the opposite of public choice. I don't know if it's called social choice. Either, either way, it's like the assumption that. Um, you know, non like incent like things other than economic incentives drive decision making. So I was wondering if you can maybe elaborate on like what's kind of like the opposite of public choice. Like what is it trying to oppose? Um, I think public choice was born not as a reaction to social choice per se, but as a reaction to welfare economics mm. and to very romantic political science. Mm. So we have the, the political scientists who are sort of romanticizing what was going on mm -hmm. in, in government. And, and then you had the welfare economists who were saying, markets fail. Mm. They, 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 they fail when you have monopolies or when, you, when, when they can't provide sufficient quantities of public goods or, or when there are externalities. And so therefore, the welfare economists said, we have to entrust government with mm. um, solving these problems mm. and they never once stopped to question the fact that maybe the people that are doing mm -hmm. the, the the governmental uh, solutions might not do the right thing you know mm. they might not achieve uh, efficient results either mm. and so it's pr predominantly trying to react to I guess I mean I, I may be using like uninformed is a little too biased, but perhaps the notion that, for example, I think Nancy McLean was specifically talking about how um, this affected uh, school systems in the South, right? And then, so perhaps it was saying that, that the opposite of public choice would be to say that, you know, we must just get, we should give more money to the school systems because giving more money to the school systems will make it better. And that's the end of, that's the, end of the conversation, right? Yes. And public choice would say, giving, you need to look at how the school system's set up and how it's got all these various interest groups in it and it's not the school system you really think it is. Exactly, and and you have to examine how it is that people within this structure are operating. You mm -hmm. know, I don't know about the school system in the United States as much as I know about the Guatemalan school system, but we have um, 
children who aren't really getting an education mm -hmm. and uh, we have um, uh, unionized professors who keep getting mm. uh, more and more salary raises and mm. they, they go out to the streets and they're not teaching the full week they're not actually transmitting any knowledge to the children there mm -hmm. i don't know if we, we have something similar to the no child left behind policy mm -hmm. so you you start analyzing what's really going on in in the schools and why 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 are teachers motivated to unionize to mm -hmm. to become an interest group to lobby the government mm -hmm. for for greater salaries and mm -hmm. why they're not incentivated to teach properly you know mm -hmm. and and once you start getting at these um, the, these realities, then you start be, uh, becoming a better, I think, a better political scientist or historian in, mm -hmm. in, in, in her case, um, in McLean's case, and, and you start making better recommendations. Hmm. And so essentially you're just trying to, um, or I guess, because a lot of times uh, public choice is affiliated with classical liberalism. It's very often associated with more libertarian or liberty-minded talk. Um, is Do you think that's because it fundamentally what it does is just looks at government in a very skeptical manner? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, think, I think there are a lot of public choice um, scholars who are um, libertarian or even anarchists mm -hmm. or, or, or who believe in general, who believe in freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, it doesn't have to be the case. Mm -hmm. We're at the Public Choice Society meeting, and mm -hmm. here you meet people who practice public choice, who are Keynesians, and who work at the IMF, and who, mm -hmm. you know, so it's it's a toolkit, and mm -hmm. as such, it shouldn't be necessarily associated with one form of thinking or the other. And mm -hmm. I think that the founders of public choice really wanted to get away from an ideological debate and, mm -hmm. and, and study um, things more empirically and, and, and provide a diagnosis of what was going on in the political field mm. and sort of very dispassionate uh, mm -hmm. diagnosis and then build from there you know mm. because they, they do propose some solutions mm -hmm. uh, but uh, and Buchanan said it you know that after 1985 when he wrote Reason of Rules he became more of a, of, of a normative um, scientist and he was preferring you know value judgments saying what what he would like to be done Mm -hmm. But um, it's based on, on this prior diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you think would be, like, what do you make of sort of like the spread of public choice theory in the academy? Do you see it going well? Do you see it maybe contained in only certain departments? Um, what do you make of the current state of the discipline? Um, I've been following public <coughs> choice since um, the 19, since 1995, let's say. Mm -hmm. So I think... When I first stumbled on it, there was quite a bit of resistance from the political science departments, mm -hmm. and they were saying, you know, oh, these economic imperialists, they're mm -hmm. encroaching on our field mm -hmm. and, and bringing in their, you know, sort of um, bringing in their views. Uh, what I've seen in the years following uh, is that political science has incorporated a lot of public choice. Mm. And here at the Publisher Society, you alternate uh, with a, a political scientist and an, an economic president. Mm. And, um, so there, I think it, there, the receptivity has increased and, and the value of public choice has been recognized. I think in, in my experience in 
the years that we've been promoting it mm -hmm. uh, in Latin America and specifically in Guatemala, the way these ideas have sort of percolated into public discussion mm -hmm. is, is very clear. You know, people now use terms like um, perverse incentives mm. or regulatory capture, mm. and, and they do it without you know, uh, they, they don't maybe don't know where the term comes from, but but it's public choice. Mm. And that's certainly very encouraging to hear. And I guess, I mean, we're preaching to the choir, but it all just sounds like common sense. You put people exactly. in government, they're going to do what they feel like doing. Um, you put some structures around them, they're going to play within those structures. Um, I guess, what, do you think there's any sort, what do you make of any of the I guess, to, do you see any critiques of public choice, any powerful critiques you find particularly meaningful? Yes, well, the, the, the skepticism, the irony, you know, mm -hmm. uh, cynicism, uh, some people find it cynical. Mm -hmm. and, and you could sort of despair mm -hmm. that politics is not uh, soluble. Mm -hmm. you know, I think Henry Hazlitt wrote a book, this is politics insoluble. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, you could you could find that in, in 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 public choice literature. You come, you could come to that conclusion. Um, I think it's it's too dramatic. I think I mm -hmm. think public choice people are trying to come up with better solutions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the marriage of public choice with the Bloomington School and the mm -hmm. Australian approach is very promising in terms of finding um, a, a diversity of solutions. You know, not not trying to have a one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. type of, of policy prescription, but uh, and so the other criticism that that is levied against public choice is that it's that the economic the economist has very narrow lenses mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. isn't looking at some of the sociological or psychological mm -hmm. uh, uh, concerns, and and that's sort of true, but mm -hmm. um, I think economics is evolving. Mm -hmm. I think they're incorporating a lot of, of, of sociology and psychology. Mm -hmm. And so I think public choice is really the resurrection of political economy and, and sort of uh, it harkens to the time when uh, the Scottish Enlightenment mm -hmm. saw this as a whole, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and studying society as a whole. Mm -hmm. So let's get into uh, your work in Latin America. So the U.S., right, we it's kind of started here and it's starting to spread. And I'm a, so how is how was it received in Latin America and where do you think it's going? Okay, well, we, we started a public choice center called Centro para el Análisis de las Decisiones Públicas. Mm. And it is part of the uh, International Relations and Political Science Department at UFM. Mm -hmm. uh, we started out by teaching a few seminars and translating works because as you say, this is very US-centric. Mm -hmm. And the literature is all in English, mm -hmm. and so it's very hard to come by material written in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Even even Buchanan's work is not entirely translated into Spanish. Cacos mm. uh, of Consent was translated 18 years after its publication. Mm. So um, there, the, the scarcity of materials was one thing, and and the U.S. centricity of the examples also. Mm. You know, you're working with. Um, bicameral Congress and a, a presidential mm -hmm. uh, electoral system with electoral colleges, which is fairly unique to the United States. Mm -hmm. And so translating all of that to Latin America is, is something that is still 
that we're still working on. But in, in general terms, I think people respond positively to the, to, to the intuition. As you say, it's common sense mm -hmm. to, to, to the intuitions and the insights. And, and they, they find that it is applicable to our realities and that it does offer answers. Hmm. I guess really quickly on a note about translating into English, because I know um, many people might say like English is sort of like the language of freedom, because you know, mm -hmm. all the freedom-oriented yes. books are written in English. How, it, is it really that important, right, that certain languages really kind of silo ideas and really translating is that important? I think it's very important, uh, hmm. because only English-speaking Latin Americans are familiar with public choice. Hmm. Uh, or, 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 or you have a very incomplete picture, you know, um, because the, the the books that have been translated are sort of not, you know, you don't have a whole, a whole picture of, of of the of the school of thought of mm. the of the research project, as mm. Dr. Buchanan called it. So um, it's like Dr. Buchanan stumbled on nucleic salt because he had to take. Uh, German mm. <laughs> and, <laughs> in college and, and uh, for his PhD and and then he could read German and he found a very wealthy um, text uh, you know wealthy in ideas and 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 it clicked with him and and that coupled with what he found out about Italy and mm -hmm. Italian uh, public finance mm -hmm. when he was there for his Fulbright those that as you said you know that that literature, that viewpoint that the Italian economists had, he was able to bring it into the into the English language uh, mm. sphere. So I think I think it's important to translate mm. the work instead mm. and to and to produce our own our own work and mm. mm. uh, apply to our own politics. So do you think the language barrier kind of siloing ideas into their various respective cultures do you think that has a really outsized effect on politics? Like, do you think Latin American politics, or name any other country like China? China, for I'm Chinese, so I'll use that, right? You know, like some people might say the reason, one of the reasons why, you know, China will stay the way it is for a long time is because all of the pro-freedom, pro-democracy stuff is not in Mandarin, right? It's in English, and everything that they do have, you know, the pro-authoritarian stuff, that's the stuff they can read. So, do you think language does have that sort of staying power in Latin America? Is that what you're noticing? Well, I don't I don't know if it's as drastic as as with China, but I, I I would believe that it's important to to communicate as well as we can the mm -hmm. ideas of liberty and to try to, to to communicate in in the languages that people are comfortable in, mm -hmm. and so yes, I I, I do think that um, well you know as, as we were talking the the fact. That through the years we've been able to to permeate the national debate with terms such of as as regulatory capture and things like that, and mm -hmm. that, that people now understand what that is, and that and mm. they understand rent seeking, and they understand that that goes on, mm. and they can name it and describe it. That's that's very important mm. because that that will produce a different set of um, not 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 just the rhetoric, but a, a different set of values that the voters will um, uh, mm. will bring to the to the voting booth. Right? Mm. 
So, yeah, let's definitely talk about voting because Latin America, at least from what I know as an American, is the, you know, for Brazil, for example, is like the left leaning party is a, so, a traditional socialist party and the right wing party is an actual fascist party, right? So la- that's my general interpretation of what I've heard, right? Um, so, it, like, first, is it as crazy as I just outlined? And then, two, do you think it has anything to do with the language, the history, like the ideas that are sort of spilling around all the time? Um. I think that the, the stereotypes about Latin American politics in U.S. academic circles mm-hmm. are, are stereotypical. Mm-hmm. It, there's a great variety <coughs> of mm-hmm. political systems and political rules in all of Latin America. Mm-hmm. And you are right, I think, in the sense that we do have um, some m- more volatile mm-hmm. uh, politics. Mm-hmm. Our parties are not long-lasting. Mm-hmm. In Guatemala, we're facing elections. This they're, they're coming up in a few months. We have 29 political parties. Mm. <laughs> uh, we, we have, to this day, we have not certainty that they will all be able to participate in mm. the elections because the, the Supreme Electoral Council can still ban Mm. certain candidates from participating or not, depending on how they interpret the electoral rules. So mm. it's it's very um, uncertain, and mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot more instability. Mm. There's a lot more at stake, I think, in our very presidential systems, in the sense that um, the party that wins can make a lot of changes mm. that mm-hmm. um, are transcendental to our lives. Mm. And that's not maybe possible in the U.S. where you have a lot of checks and balances. Or mm-hmm. you had <laughs> a lot of checks <laughs> yeah. and balances. Yeah, we'll see where those so, go. <laughs> but um, so so there's there's a lot to to continue exploring. I think in in Latin America, and then you have and you have the populism and the the governments that are are overstaying their welcome Mm, mm -hmm. and that have used democratic means to come into power, Mm -hmm. but then stay on Mm -hmm. and on and on, you know, and they Mm -hmm. form the constitution. Mm. For for instance, there's a lot in the public choice literature on constitutional economics. Mm -hmm. I think that's very valuable for for our countries, yeah. Mm. And so on the notion of constitutional economics, I guess one, you know, big word, so, Really quickly, what is that? And then two, uh, how does, I guess, you, I'm sure you know about Guatemala as you can toss in any other countries you might have knowledge about. How do their restraints on power differ from perhaps in the U.S.? Well, as um, your parties are long-lived, so mm-hmm. your constitution has mm-hmm. had a long life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have constitutions that are very short-lived mm-hmm. and we have tended to to have uh, or convene constitutional assemblies uh, many times mm, throughout mm-hmm. history and have had new documents and sort of refounded our countries mm-hmm. one and twice and three times, mm-hmm. uh, some countries more than others. We have not had the success, I think, with uh, a constitutional document uh, in terms of it being a good social contract for the long run. And um, we also have very developed constitutions where mm. you, you they, they, they sort of want to um, over-legislate and, mm. and predict what 
what the uh, social order should look like, mm. and and um, they're they're more prescriptive and less mm. out of just a list of things that government cannot do. Mm. Uh, fewer checks and, uh, mm. and limits on on political power. Mm. So. Um, so I'm assuming there's like provisions giving free health care or something like that. Things or, like that, mm. and it's written into the constitution where mm. you know healthcare is a right mm. or housing mm. is a right, mm. and then you have these contradictory articles within the very constitution where mm. you know, water is a public domain, but mm. it's also of particular use or mm. private use. In within the same constitution, you have these contradictions. So then you have interpretations, and then you have a constitutionality court that has to interpret mm -hmm. what the constitutional <laughs> really says, mm -hmm. and that interpretation varies. So mm -hmm. you have, again, less stability. Mm. Um, and these constitutions are mm -hmm. less like constitutions like we would know, more like omnibus bills that are you know, traditional yeah. legislation, essentially. Mm -hmm. mm. And, they, and, and so constitutional economics is very helpful because um, Buchanan and Taluk and some of the other authors, um, Jeffrey Brennan, they talk about the fact that we operate uh, within the rules, mm. but we also give ourselves our rules. Mm. And the, the way that these rules should be uh, redacted and, and, and thought of mm -hmm. is different. And I think it, it also provides a really good theoretical framework to approach um, the constitutional order. Mm. And so you started the Public Choice Center at UFM. Has, have similar institutions sprung up throughout Latin America, or is it still just the, mm -hmm. like the one, time, one, thing, one entity at the moment? As far as I know, we're the only public choice center in Latin America, mm. but, but there are quite a few other um, think tanks and universities where public choice is taught, mm. um, or and and worked uh, and worked, uh, and some law and economics also. Mm. Um, there's a, a, a fellow uh, travelers mm -hmm. in Ecuador. Dora uh, mm. Puerto has promoted public choice mm -hmm. uh, theory. She actually studied with Buchanan. Mm. And uh, so she's one of our mentors. And then uh, in Argentina, there's quite a few scholars who do know public choice and mm -hmm. work, work very, very well uh, with public choice. And um, there's some people in Mexico and, and uh, someone in Costa Rica and mm. in Spain, mm -hmm. a few people in Spain so mm. that we've made contact with. But as far as I know, we're the only center specifically devoted to public choice. Mm. So on that now, where do uh, Latin American leaders and ideologues get their ideas, right? So in the U.S., we can, you know, we, we point to the universities, right? They learn, the people from the left learn their, you know, you know, see, you can see where I'm going with this. So mm -hmm. what, what are the, what do you think are like the major doctrines that are popular right now? And then where do you think they came from? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I think as in the U.S. where you have mainstream mm -hmm. uh, ideas that, uh, are incubated in, in, in universities. I think the ideas that dominate um, Latin American politics came from Spain and Portugal mm. because we are uh, mm -hmm. uh, former colonies and very bureaucratic, very mm. uh, top-heavy uh, 
top-down mm-hmm. uh, Napoleonic code type mm. of systems. I think that's one layer of ideas. Mm-hmm. And then I think that the, we're still seeing the the residues of the ideas that were promoted by the Economic Commission of Latin America mm. in terms of dependency theory, mm. Marxist analysis mm-hmm. of um, class struggle, mm-hmm. and um, th- those are very uh, sticky ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they, they <laughs> just mm-hmm. won't go away, um, mm-hmm. and they permeated even in religious circles with mm. liberation theology. So. Mm. Um, we're still battling those ideas. Mm. And I guess on that note, do you have a strategy or a plan to uh, spread public choice theory or just spread more uh, classical liberal style ideas? Well, we've operated on on the basis of um, the work generally done by think tanks. So mm-hmm. we've published and we, we have um, some seminars and we, we, we try to... to promote the ideas uh, through through these means that are available to us, that are mostly academic. And uh, I think we've been successful, but we could achieve more. Mm. I, I think now that, that uh, we have all of these electronic means at our disposal, mm-hmm. it would, our, our infa- influence could be even more far-reaching. Mm. So I'd like to wrap up the interview by sort of asking you some more questions about the current state of Latin American politics, especially from, I guess, more of my stereotypical American perspectives. Um, and I guess public choice can certainly explain a lot of things that are going on. So one thing that's popular these days is sort of what's going on in, I believe, Chile. Um, people say that, I, was, it, was it Argentina or was it Chile that recently rewrote their constitution? I don't know if you've been, okay. Um, and many people would say that, you know, the problems that we see today in Chile are you know, the ghosts of neoliberalism or something like that. Um, so I was wondering, I guess, I don't know what your knowledge of Chile is, but, I'm, but if you can give us maybe some on-the-ground perspectives or uh, not on-the-ground, but like, you know, closer uh, than we are. We're struggling to understand what happened <clears throat> in Chile because mm-hmm. for many years it was our example of uh, an economically prosperous country mm-hmm. that had sort of achieved uh, sufficient stability and had a really, the Chileans have a much better standard of life mm-hmm. than a lot of Latin Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what Chileans have sort of told us is that the, the people who embarked on the liberalization project mm-hmm. were very competent at communicating the economic importance of these ideas, mm. but they neglected the cultural um, mm. uh, mm-hmm. communication of ideas. And there's a sense of inequality that mm. even even though people are far better off in Chile that, than in other countries in Latin America, they still feel that the disparity was, mm. and, and that sort of prompted this, this uh, return to, to um, very far left ideologies. Fortunately, the constitutional project was so progressive mm. that it was voted down mm-hmm. in, in, in the referendum. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I understand it, the progressive movement isn't going away. They're trying to pass all of these reforms through uh, regular legislation and, and trying to make their project 
mm-hmm. uh, become a reality, even though the people voted it down. Mm. So it's a very convulsive and very convulsive situation. I think, in general, all of us should be paying more attention to culture and mm. to cultural um, means of transmitting our ideas. You know, we've been very uh, cold and rational mm-hmm. and not sufficiently emotional. Mm. And I think that um, we we need to communicate. In, in different ways, through poetry, through mm-hmm. through plays, mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. movies, you know, uh, because mm. um, this is probably what moved the Chileans and especially Chilean youth mm-hmm. into um, accepting this this uh, proposal. Mm. And I'm assuming a lot of these pretty Marxist ideas. Um, I mean, Latin America in general. When you tell me Latin America, I just think Marxism. I'm assuming that does, because Marxism has been framed in a very, uh, they did win the culture war, essentially, right? I'm assuming, uh, from what yes. I know, Marx, this Marxism is very popular in sort of the more, uh, the global south, particularly because it's framed as a, you know, the, the capitalism is for the oppressors and, we, you know, we are the, the colonized and, you know, Marxism is our savior and it's a very revolutionary idea. Um, so I'm assuming that's how Marxism is framed. It's like, you know, Chile, like, or not just, yeah, Marxism is sort of like the liberating ideology and capitalism, like the oppressing ideology. In, in Guatemala, they tried um, <clears throat> doing, you know, pure Marxism. Then they became it became um, a, a Maya uh, mm. um, indigenous population. Mm. Uh, they framed the oppression in terms of race, mm. and that didn't work very well either mm-hmm. and uh, they've done the environmental mm-hmm. Marxism <laughs> and the uh, mm-hmm. female Marxism <laughs> you know and so um, yes it, it, they keep redressing mm-hmm. the same the same um, basic um, idea of, of oppression mm-hmm. and um, so we have to keep <laughs> keep working um, mm-hmm. to, to debunk and and they always say, oh well, it didn't work that well in Chile, mm-hmm. uh, in 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 Cuba, or it didn't work that well in in Nicaragua, but um, it will work very well here. <laughs> yeah. You know, when mm-hmm. when we implement it, it will work here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, classic story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're aware of Samuel Popkin's Rational Peasants. Very, um, I mean, that essentially he was trying to debunk. Um, based, he studied how. Vietnam became communist, and the prior work was essentially the very, very much like social economy, like very romanticized. Like the Vietnamese are communists because, um, like, you know, they understand the, the failings of capitalism and they just care about more, care about each other more. And that's why they're socialists. But he was just saying, like, no, not really. It's just because there's essentially a power vacuum when the French colonial government and who was there? It was the communists. There was just either if you want, if you want, if you're a Vietnamese peasant. You can either side with the communists who are saying they're going to free you, or you can side with the French colonial government that are currently oppressing you. You know, if you have to make a choice, you're going to choose um, the la- the first one. So that's so he's just saying like it's not because Vietnamese people are inherently communists, it's because the political context at the time, you know, siding with the communists was really the most rational. And essentially, that's he really turned the political conversation from this very romanticized thing into more rational choice uh, style. So I was wondering. Do you see that in Latin America in, in the sense that um, just it's um, it's being framed like socialism is essentially 
like there's not really other options in terms of where you can turn to. Yes, and something you said really clicked with me, and, and it's just the failings of capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that they've done very well is to say that the systems that we currently have are capitalist. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've ever had a really free market uh, mm -hmm. framework in any of the countries, not even Chile, mm -hmm. was totally you know free market. And there's all of this mercantilism, mm -hmm. and you call it crony capitalism, mm -hmm in the United States, but all of this mercantilism and all of this uh, top-heavy bureaucracy and, and, and corruption that goes on within um, public administration with people who, who are uh, privileged or who have access to power. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's very displeasing to, to the common citizen, mm -hmm. and, and they identify that as capitalism, and so then they turn into socialism. So, Yes, I think the narrative has to change. We have to be able to offer mm -hmm. um, freedom in as, as something that has not been sufficiently explored mm -hmm. or tried. Mm -hmm. mm. So what I'm getting is that in Latin America, the status quo, this inadequate status quo is just conflated to be capitalism, even though this is really like odd, like mercantilist mm -hmm. model. And there's no major push there's like there's no capitalist posing as the good guys the good guys the people posing as the good guys are the socialists and there's not really a loud mm -hmm. passionate uh, free market crowd yet no and neoliberalism sort of did it it did was a very poor um label mm -hmm. for some of the movements in the 1980s that, mm -hmm. that tried to promote uh, liberalization and, and privatization um the, the reforms were partial. Some mm -hmm. of them were quite successful. Uh, the telecommunications reform in Guatemala was very successful. Mm -hmm. But it's still not enough to garner, I think, uh, political um, mm. popularity. Mm. So I'd like to end by maybe asking a few questions of how do you think you can really establish more? Because you didn't isolate the free market crowd did very well with the policies. They did very poorly with the making this look good culturally, making this like popular. Um, and this, you see this going on, especially in Hong Kong and Taiwan, where uh, capitalism and democracy is obviously, you know, objectively good based on the metrics, but also it's part of like a, you know, we don't like China, you know, we're Hong Kong and like this, this is who we are, these markets are who we are. It goes, so it goes deeper than just the cost benefit analysis. It's like markets and democracy in Hong Kong are just part of the, you know, that's who they are essentially. And that's sort of how it has staying power. So. How do you think you can give uh, public choice theory or just you know classical liberal market ideas in general um, this sort of more cultural appeal in Latin America? Well, you just answered your question because mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because I think in Hong Kong the idea the people are vested in the model. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's it's what they are. They mm -hmm. they are entrepreneurs. They 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 you know the the, the system actually defines. A Hong Konger, right? mm -hmm. and um, that's great. Um, we have thought of many ways of making Guatemala a country of property owners. Mm. If you are a property owner, if you are a, an entrepreneur, then you have something at stake, you mm -hmm. know, and and you have something to lose mm -hmm. when uh, socialists or other people come trying to take that away from you. And mm -hmm. I think um, 
Guatemala is actually a country where people dream of being entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. We have, uh, according to the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor, a very high percentage of people who, who put up businesses. And mm -hmm. so trying to get people to understand that that's, that's what's making our, our economy better, what's making their families uh, better off. That's what they have to protect and, and safeguard. Mm -hmm. That would be very, very important. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much, Ethan. Carol Rios is a professor of economics and a trustee at the Universidad Francisco Marroquin, joining us here today at the Public Choice Society Conference here in Seattle, Washington. If you liked what you heard today, make sure to check out our research at AIER.org, as well as check out all our various social media channels on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you really, really liked what you heard and you want to support more cutting-edge outreach like this, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at AIER.org. And I guess if you want to add a, a quick closing note about UF Famine, where we can learn more about that as well. Yes, yes. Well, you can look up uh, UFM at also UFM.edu mm. mm -hmm. and uh, find uh, CADEP, the Center for Public Choice, uh, at that website. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us on the show.